are listening to the Strategies at Work podcast for October 2016. Today's episode is titled, The Importance of Sound Thinking. Organizational leaders must work to teach and train all stakeholders to think correctly about God, that is, to embrace sound biblical theology. Innate in all humans is the propensity to blame God for difficult situations and circumstances. Blame is bad theology and will lead to bad results. Sound theology is to take responsibility for our sin and its implications and to think correctly about God. Sound theology is the only antidote for the error chain of sin, and only sound theological thinking will lead to good results. Wise organizational leaders understand this truth and will build cultures designed to promote sound theology in the minds of all stakeholders. And now Dr. Chester brings us the message titled, Causality and the Error Chain of Sin. Well, this morning our topic is causality and the error chain of sin. And we will be reading from James chapter 1, uh, verses 13 through 17. So I'm going to read the text, and then we'll make some introductory comments and talk about this text. James writes, Let no one say when he is tempted or tested, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Well, this is a continuation of James's theme that he began in verse 2, and that is the whole issue of trials and tribulations in life. And just to remind us of the backdrop here, uh, James is trying to present to us a picture of what it means to live under the Lordship of Christ. Now, keep in mind that as James is writing, he's writing to Christians in the first century who are very knowledgeable in Scripture, and therefore it's not necessary to give a lot of theological backdrop to what he's saying. He believes and knows that they have that understanding, so now he's building off that understanding and telling us how to specifically live under the Lordship of Christ. And in the process of doing that, he's going to give us a series of imperatives. And up to now, he's given us six imperatives. And now he's about ready to give us imperative number seven and imperative number eight. And before the end of the book, we will have something like 60 imperatives that come from this particular book. Now, this is interesting because we live in a time when this focus is is on grace, the grace of God, which absolutely is a truth. You know, we are saved by grace through faith alone. We do nothing to merit salvation. It's a free gift of God. No one can can claim any basis for thinking they did something to merit the gift of salvation. Nevertheless, once you have come to Christ, there is a mandate to obey. And we see that very clearly in a, in a text like Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For you are created in Christ Jesus to do a work assignment that God has called you to do from the foundation of creation as part of his meta narrative. Now I paraphrase verse 10 there for you to kind of express what I think Paul's trying to say. 
And the English translations of that get a little obtuse there, so trying to make that a little more clear. You see, obedience to Christ is not what saves us, but obedience to Christ is evidence that we are saved. So that's the, that's the point of obedience. If you don't get that, don't understand that, then you'll be confused about the role of obedience in the Christian life. Now, another text that we uh, can look back on and realize that you know, obedience to the commands of Christ is important is what we call the Great Commission. I believe that's a misnomer. I would call that the discipleship mandate, and that's in Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20, where Jesus commanded his disciples to reproduce themselves. And this appears to be a multi-generational mandate because these disciples then, you know, that were produced by the disciples of Christ were doing the same thing. They, in turn, went out and produced disciples. So this seems to be a multi-generational mandate. And the purpose of this mandate now is to deal with the sin issue in mankind that's blocking man from doing what God created man to do in the first place, which is to rule his creation according to his image, which means according to his will and his ways. So the mandate that's given to us to become disciples of Christ contains two key elements. The first element is you baptize people. Obviously, you're looking for people who make a profession of faith in Christ, and you have some reason to believe have been regenerated by the Holy Spirit, and you baptize them as a as a sacrament that says we acknowledge, we commission you before God to be a believer in Christ, to walk as a believer in Christ, to live out the reality of Christ in you, and we're laying hands on you through baptism to affirm that in you. And the second part of the command is the tricky part. Because now it says training them or teaching them to obey everything that Christ commanded. Wow, that's very interesting. So what does it mean to obey the commands of Christ? What are the commands of Christ? This is where it gets very challenging because now we have a revelation called Scripture that gives us a massive you know, insight into the commands of Christ. The book of James happens to be one little book in the midst of Scripture that contains a very, very succinct list of some of these commands. Many people compare James to the book of Proverbs in the Old Testament. Proverbs is a bunch of pithy statements which gives revelation about how we should live. And now James is the New Testament version of Proverbs, which gives us now through pithy statements and pithy sayings, you know, revelation about how we should live as people who are or live under the Lordship of Christ. So that's the backdrop here of all of this. Now, up to now, we've got, we've had six particular imperatives that we've been given, and we're still in chapter one. There are five chapters in this book. So we're just beginning this journey of unpacking these imperatives. In the Greek language, there is an imperative mood, and the imperative mood means that this is a command that you must do this. Now, not every imperative is in the imperative mood, but most of them are. I'd say that 90, 95% of the imperatives in James are in the imperative mood. And the two in this particular text, verses 13 and then verse 16, are both in the imperative mood. But the imperatives that we receive so far start out in verse 2 with count it all joy when you encounter various trials. And then it says in uh, verse 4, uh, to be steadfast and let these trials have their full effect, effect of transforming us. And verse 5, it commands us to ask for wisdom. In verse 6 and 7, it tells us, well, you don't just ask for wisdom, you ask in faith, and that means 
Verse 7 says that means no doubt. You believe that when you ask for wisdom, you will receive wisdom. And then verses uh, 9 and 10 talks about boasting, which that's interesting because we think boasting is bad. Well, it normally is bad, but there are some exceptions to that. One exception is when you boast in the reality of your high position in Christ. You're really boasting in Christ. You're not boasting in yourself. You're boasting your identity in Christ that you've been given. It's a gift. So you didn't do anything to earn it. And so now you're boasting in that. And then if you happen to have, you know, material assets, substantial material assets, you're boasting in the reality that these don't do anything for you in terms of your eternal state. They're just tools that you use here to serve the purposes of God. And so now we turn now to a different perspective, and that is the whole issue of causality. And in a world where you have a sovereign God ruling his creation and you have bad things happening, it's really easy for mankind to think that God is the cause of these bad things. And when you think that way, you are thinking wrongly. That's called the error chain of sin. So let's just take a look at what James has to say about this. It says, first, let no one say when he is tempted. Again, this is the first imperative of this particular section, and that is the command, don't say this. And to say something means you're thinking it. So it implies don't think this. Don't presume that when you have a trial or tribulation or a difficulty in life that God is trying to trip you up. God doesn't try to trip people up. His motive is never to cause you to sin. His motive is always to bring you into alignment with himself. That's always what he's after. So trials and tribulations come on us because of the sin of mankind. It's in the sin of mankind is manifested through ourselves, through our own fleshly natures, through the culture, the collective impact of sin in the culture, and through the work of Satan trying to compound the, the impact of sin on the culture and on the individuals. So when these things come on us, it doesn't come from God, and God is certainly not trying to trip us up, but God rather is redemptive. He's trying to use these difficulties, these trials and tribulations to perfect us. It takes us back to the beginning of this chapter, James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, where God wants to sanctify us through the trials and tribulations of life. He goes on to say, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Now, the, the idea here is a fishing metaphor. Uh, it's trying, it's, it speaks of a, of a lure that you're putting in the water and you're trying to capture that fish and that lure has got to be appealing to the fish. And then once the fish bites on it, now the fisherman can pull the, the fish in. The, the fisherman's caught him. So now the, the lure enticement is our own desire, our own, you know, will, the things that we want done in life, the things that we want to accomplish. These are the things now that become the lure, the pull us now into deception. And so we've got to be very clear that God is not the cause of this. This comes from us and from other people that are in sin and ultimately from Satan. Then he says, do not be deceived. Anytime you see do not be deceived, that's a hint that we can be deceived. And it's very interesting, the, the word that's, that's translated here in the Greek language, deceived, is the Greek word planao. Planao uh, means to deviate from the course, to get off track, 
to be deceived, to be you know, misled. So it, there are a number of nuances that go with this, but the whole idea is that you've deviated from a biblical perspective of life. You've lost metaphysical awareness. And by metaphysical awareness, I mean the ability to see from God's perspective. You've lost that ability to see that way. So if you've lost that ability to see from God's perspective, then you're only left with how you see from a human perspective. And so that will lead you many times into deception if that's all you can see. So he's he's speaking specifically to believers in Christ, and he affirms that here, my beloved brothers. He's talking about his spiritual brothers in Christ to not be deceived. That's an imperative. Do not be deceived. It's interesting. It's a command. So a command to not be deceived means I have to work, I have to take responsibility to be metaphysically aware, to always see things biblically. And then it's going to lay out for you some traits of God, some traits of sound theology that we have to embrace to maintain metaphysical awareness. Now, this is not a comprehensive list. This is just a very simple list of theological ideas that you have to be very, very clear on. If you're not clear on them, then you will be deceived. So, first of all, he says here that every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. So you have here this idea of a good gift or a good giving. Actually, this word this word for gift here is a participle. It's really ever good giving. So the act of giving which God gives to us in the act. And then the next phrase is as every perfect gift, that refers to the gift itself. So God in the act of giving and in the gift itself, it's always good. It's always designed to bring us to himself. Remember, good is a divine attribute. And there are two Greek words that are translated good in English. One of them means internal goodness and the other one refers to the fruit of internal goodness. And the word that's used here refers to internal goodness. So anytime you you see internal goodness referred to, it's speaking of internal transformation. It's speaking of a changed heart. So every transformed heart, you know, that is a giving that God gives to us is this process of transformation. And then every good gift, every perfect gift refers now to the completion of the process of giving. When you are giving someone, there's a process you're engaged in, and it leads to receiving the gift. And he's saying that gift here is perfect. And that word comes from the word teleos, which means to accomplish one's purpose. So God is always giving us something intangibly, intrinsically good to accomplish his purpose in us. So Those are two key attributes, the goodness of God and the teleological nature of God are key attributes that we have to keep in mind in how he works. Furthermore, it says, coming down from the Father of lights, in whom there's no variation or shadow due to change. What we have here now is a a God who in no way, absolutely no way, changes. He's always immutable, unchangeable. So we have in this text here a number of really important realities about how God works. First of all, God is impeccable. He's not able to sin. And therefore, he does not use sin to try to distract us, to 
causes to trip us up. But he redeems the trials and tribulations that come upon us because of our own evil desires. He redeems those. So the impeccable nature of God is the first attribute we see in this text. The next attribute we see in this text is the goodness of God. Finally, we see the we see the teleology of God, which is the purpose of God in accomplishing his purpose in us and the immutable nature of God. Impeccability, goodness, teleology, and immutability. These four attributes of God are critical for us to maintain metaphysical awareness of God's perspective and to respond to trials and tribulations correctly. If we don't do this, we will get caught up in the error chain of sin. And the error chain of sin is referred to here when it talks about your desire. It says, then desire, when it has conceived, give birth to sin, and when sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. The metaphor here is that of a woman in labor. The first thing it starts is she's impregnated, and then she, she, the baby grows within her, and then the baby is born, and then the baby grows up and dies. That's the big process he's referring to, and he's using that metaphorically to refer to the error chain of sin. And the error chain of sin begins when we are impregnated with wrong theology, bad theology, wrong thinking about God. And so now we have a desire that's inconsistent with God. And if that desire continues to grow, it's going to give birth to sin, which is the actual action where you are you're deviating from the will and the ways of God. And if you live that life of deviating from the will and the ways of God, that's going to lead to death. Obviously, that, that there's a spiritual implication and a physical implication there as well. So what this text is teaching us is the importance of recognizing the real cause of trials and tribulations and that God is not the cause and the recognizing the error of chain of sin which brings the cause of these tribulations back right on us in our, our sin nature, which came upon us by virtue of being born as descendants of Adam and Eve who sinned in the garden. So causality and the error chain of sin. It's all about bringing us to a sound view of God, sound theology working in us, so we then can live out the reality of Christ in us, the hope of glory. Probably one of the greatest examples uh, of this reality is Jesus in the garden. Jesus was very metaphysically aware on the on the garden, and he was he did not. There's no evidence he had any temptation at all to blame God for his situation. And that's what we tend to do when we look at a sovereign God in charge of his universe and we see bad things happening. We want to blame God. Jesus did not do that. He did not was not tempted to do that. He recognized that God was not the cause but was metaphysically aware that God was using the situation to accomplish his will. Jesus never contemplated a lie about the nature of God. He never conceived a thought that was contrary to truth and consistently never began the error chain of sin. He never had a thought in his mind that was contrary to truth. But Jesus was tested just like we are, but without sin. And the key to that test was his continually guarding his mind and keeping his thoughts sound with sound thinking about God. But unlike most of us, most of 
unlike Jesus, most of us, we get caught up with bad thoughts about God. We get into fear and doubt and unbelief and questioning God and, and we get, we get very consumed with, with bad thinking about God. We forget that his, he's impeccable. We forget about his goodness. We forget about his immutability. We forget about his teleological nature. And when we forget these things, then we are led astray. We are deceived. And when we are deceived now, we're making bad choices that will lead to sin. And sin ultimately will lead to death. In Christ, though, we know that we have freedom from death. Because in Christ, we have all that we need. And that is, we have his work on our behalf to make us acceptable with the Father. And so death has no hold on us. Even though we will... Barring the return of Christ, we will all physically die. We will all be resurrected, and we will enjoy eternal life with him. And so that's the beauty of what salvation really is. Salvation, the salvation, the way of salvation that God chose was not to eliminate death in this existence, but to eliminate death in the next existence and to resurrect us into that existence. So this is God's plan and purpose, and we have to be clear that the way we're to live in the here and now until we transition to the next existence is to live in the reality of sound theology like Jesus did and to know that God always has a plan and purpose, to be very metaphysically aware of the truth about God, to fight the temptation to doubt and unbelief about that truth, and to truly walk by faith in the will and ways of God. May God give us grace to all learn to do that well for his glory and his honor in Jesus' name. 